What happens next? Are we ready for it? Disruption. Change. Risk. Opportunity. Welcome to the AFIRE podcast special series, The Future, Part 2, The Urban Exodus. What is really happening to our cities and our real estate assets in this time of COVID? Today, I'm speaking with the AFIRE Future Committee to separate fear from the facts, uh, chaired by Holland Partner Group, CEO of Clyde Holland, with committee members Martin Lamb, Managing Director of Credit Suisse, Byron Carlock, Head of PwC Real Estate Practice, Brian Sanchez, the CIO of Lionstone Investments, and Chris Merrill, the CEO of Harrison Street Real Estate. So, Clyde, what exactly is happening to our cities? First, you have to go back and let's let's parcel out the different elements. You know, uh, Byron talked about the gateway cities, and I've added uh, innovation centers. So I really feel that the historical gateway cities that Byron looked at, you know, the Boston, D.C., you know, Los Angeles, San Francisco, et cetera, New York, um, those have been historically uh, dense. And those were cities that grew up that really didn't rely on the automobile uh, initially, and there is a lot of walkability. There is a lot of, you know, things in there from that standpoint. And, you know, when we look at the advent of technology and coming out of the GFC, those cities attracted a very significant number of millennials for lifestyle. And then as we've seen over the past decade, you know, since the GFC, those centers have become more and more dense and the commutes have become longer and longer. And I think that's one of the elements. Plus, the millennials are, are changing life position. When you're in your early 20s and you got out of school and you wanted to go and you wanted to essentially continue that lifestyle or the social experience that you had while you were in college, the gateway cities in a very dense format really serve that well. As the millennials have gotten a little older and they're approaching you know, <laughs> the opportunities in their lives to make commitments, um, and at least to begin that, what we've seen is the first ring and authentic cities, um, cities that have a main street that have, you know, a real, you know, kind of uh, more of a traditional lifestyle. And so it, where it could have been San Francisco originally, now you look at the mountain views, the Cupertinos, the Sunnyvales, and those second, you know, really first ring cities around those innovation centers are doing exceptionally well. And then you also have the jump to some of the second tier cities, um, you know, from that standpoint. So you have the aging of the millennials. You also have looking at the experience. Another key deal is tax, uh, tax ramifications, you know, with the tax act that happened in eliminating your state and local income tax deductions, your higher tax states um, started to see a trend pre-COVID of the move outs because of the tax burdens. And that's been very much accelerated um, in terms of what's going on. I'd compare Denver. Denver is a huge beneficiary of people moving out of New York, moving out of Boston, D.C., and, and from California. And our portfolio in Denver is just, you know, it's kind of almost on fire. And we look at where people are coming from and why. And you have a city that has 300 days of sunshine. You've got a great education background. You've got good transportation. And you have a real authentic experience both in downtown, in the tech center, and the surrounding areas. So this trend to experience and authenticity 
is we see a, uh, a real element in terms of what's happening. As it relates to multifamily um, and where we are going, we also see it's connected to jobs. And where you see the jobs and the jobs moving as we move to the, you know, re, the post-COVID world, um, this desire for experience, the desire to be with your coworkers, the desire to create and keep culture is going to continue. And so what we're focused on is really looking at the individuals that are getting out of college, that are beginning their careers in terms of what are happening. We see those migrating to HQ, the, you know, Apple, Google, Plex, all of the different things that will be where they go to build and understand and create culture and also build their individual brands. And as they move toward, um, you know, later life stages, then looking at the hub and spoke. And so we see kind of a continuation of the urban experience or the dense experience from a college lifestyle happening early career and then moving into mid-career. And then as, as people you know, get in their life change areas, make commitments, think about a family, et cetera. Those are then the hopping points or the the move to working more virtual, taking a team, leading a team from a secondary location. I was going to piggyback on that because I agree, I agree from a talent perspective. I agree from a livability perspective. I think we're seeing something now that we're trying to get our arms around, and that is a mandate on the quality of life and the city leadership. I think that people believe that those cities, by by right, give them uh, a safe environment, a clean environment, access to health care, and access to things that round out one's quality of life. And right now, we're experiencing a mandate on what is viewed as safe cities that have leadership that can be trusted and those that can't. And there's a bifurcation between city attractiveness by some of the softer elements that we've not necessarily measured before. Uh, in your market, for example, the, the exodus out to Bellevue seems to be a mandate on fear about downtown. I think in certain other markets, we're seeing um, uh, that same concern that people want to make sure that their cities are safe, secure, free of protest, or free free of unbridled protest, and then also the affordability element associated with, with burdensome taxation that might be alleviated in some of the Sunbelt cities that are experiencing um, more than average growth. So I think I think exact everything you said is absolutely true, but I think we're seeing some calibration on the points that I just brought up. You know, Byron, what I would say is I think you're exactly right, and what we're looking at in Seattle, for instance, in the essentially the push between city council and Amazon um, is: are, do cities appreciate jobs? Do they appreciate business? And the cities that are working with business and encouraging. Uh, growth in encouraging that unity between a city leadership and the business community are seeing very significant positives. And that the dichotomy that you just talked about between urban Seattle and Bellevue, I mean, Amazon has now moved their campus to approximately 7 million feet of commitments in Bellevue. And, you know, you have 
the young in, in starting out that are focused in, in terms of uh, Seattle. And you have the, you know, the five or 10 years later and let next life change moving to and the higher incomes moving to Bellevue. And it has to do with the tax and it has it also to do with city leadership. And so what you just hit on there in terms of city leadership, again, plays right into what I view as authenticity. Am are you going to keep me safe? Are you going to allow protests to get out of control? Or are you going to control them? I mean, we looked at the protests that happened in Denver, the protests that happened in Boise and Salt Lake and some of those areas, no violence. <clears throat> and it was because there was leadership that didn't allow it. And the moment it started to, to happen, they put an end to it right away <clears throat> compared to other cities who have essentially had an unbridled protest. And people are really re reacting to that in a very negative way. And so we're going to see a, uh, a, a, the people making choices, and it, it will be a real referendum on city leadership. And that's going to give individuals and cities the opportunity to look at how they're interfacing with jobs and the employers and in terms of what's happening. Uh, we see coming a very significant shift at the business level. Because we're now at a place where businesses can decide where they are going to be domiciled. <clears throat> and so we're looking at this, and we also – we've seen a shift in people, but I think the businesses are actually going to start following the talent at an increasing rate. And I'm pretty excited about that because that then gives us the opportunity to build a – uh, a kind of a set of specifications around city. What, it, what does it take for a city to be successful? And you can then grade those cities. And, you know, what you're doing in the uh, emerging trends is really looking at this grading of a city based on city elements of lifestyle, health care, quality, safety. All of those things are going to be where businesses move at an increasing rate along with state and local taxes and the different things from that standpoint. So from where I sit, the, these attractive elements are giving us the chance to really look forward and, and, and both imagine and invest in the trends that we see happening over the next decade or two. And so I'm just, I, I couldn't be more excited about really looking at this because these new data points are, are really sustainable. And um, we think that they're going to increasingly drive capital as we go forward. To a great degree, all of you are very positive about where things are going. And, and again, that's counter to the fear, counter to the expectations that people have. Now, we've talked a lot about those secondary markets, those, those markets that people are going to, perhaps, that talent is moving to, especially millennials. We still have another generation right behind them that's equally as large, the Generation Z, that are just starting to move uh, out of their college years, just starting to, and into their work lives that is changing things. Um, and all, most of you have investments in some of these major gateway markets, uh, especially in office. Um, what do you think, uh, and, and Martin, I'd, I'd love to hand it over to you. What do you think about these gateway markets? What's going to happen to New York? What's going to happen to San Francisco? Um, you know, where we think they're too expensive and the taxes are so high and, and people just can't afford to live there and perhaps they don't want to be on mass transit. But what do you think happens going forward? Is, is it the end of New York and San Francisco or is there something more nuanced? I mean, we, we definitely have, have followed the, uh, the kind of last comments about 
following you know following the talent and we have over the past few years sort of pivoted away from those gateway cities you know we sold out of san francisco um and we've invested in markets like um austin um like denver like like Portland, but now there are the questions about Portland, actually. Um, but we are still, you know, again, very positive about those gateway markets. We, we reinvested uh, more in Washington, D.C. last year and, and again in Boston. So we don't see those cities dying at all, but you've just got to be more picky. You've got to be choosy, very, very picky in, in what you invest in. So where we invested in D.C., rather than just a blanket requirement to invest in Washington, D.C., we bought a building that sat right on top of every single major subway line in D.C. Um, so we hopefully ensure that that building specifically uh, will be very attractive still to the occupational uh, base. And in Boston, we didn't just buy a building in Boston. We bought um, actually an old factory built in the late 1800s with huge windows, with huge floor-to-ceiling heights, uh, great loading uh, that gives us the ability to put in great HVAC, uh, wellness, healthness uh, opportunities there. So we, we don't see those cities dying at all. you just got to be more selective in, in what kind of building you buy and, and where you buy it. But, but, um, but, but, but certainly, you know, we are seeing a lot of stress in, in our kind of commodity type buildings where the competition is significant, like in D.C., where you have, uh, you know, lawyers that are able to demand huge amounts of TIs um, in order to agree a new lease deal or a regear, and the same in, in New York. Um, but again, it's for us, it's that being all about being picky and having the right strategy to invest in the right building and the right locate the right micro location is is very important to us. So like we're you know we were very pre-COVID, we were very interested, for example, in the in the Fulton Market area in Chicago rather than just a blanket requirement to buy in in Chicago. So those those those, those cities we don't feel uh, will die. Uh, they'll just they'll just change. Um, and and the best office buildings will survive. Martin, um, as you look at this, I mean, one of the things we've been talking about is sustainability. And as I look at Gen Z, the big joke um, of a, a bunch of Gen Zs, they don't want to have a driver's license. And so we see transportation. And what you're talking about is being on this transportation lines in these authentic areas. And so one of the one of the drivers that we're looking at is these cities with great urban public transportation. And the access to the public transportation gives you a link to the areas that are giving you uh, the best employment opportunities, but also the best residential opportunities at a lower cost than the ability to eliminate a car. Are you seeing that in, in terms of your research in, uh, in what's happening? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, just from personal experience, you know, I'm, I'm definitely not a, a millennium or even a Gen Z, nowhere near. Um, but I, you know, in you know, in New York, I do not have a driving license. I don't drive. I don't know anyone that does drive. It's just not something that people think about, in my experience, and speaking to tenants. Um, and in fact, in some of our locations, we're removing the car parking. Um, in one of our buildings, um, we're actually looking to transform some of that uh, space into amenity and into uh, upgrading the HVAC. So putting more HVAC in there to upgrade the the wellness of those of those buildings. 
Um, but yeah, we, we're, we're seeing a, a huge, or have seen a huge shift um, in that. I don't know any conversation that I've had in the investment committee where we've discussed the uh, the parking ratio. When I remember, you know, ten plus years ago, that was a huge demand. You know, what's the parking ratio? Does does the, does does the senior management get a place to park? I haven't had that conversation for for over ten years. And and when you think about it, it's one of the more expensive components of real estate uh, when we're making investments is that parking ratio. And, and some of the, the zoning requirements that are still in place in some markets have led to a ridiculous abundance of parking um, and, and yet still a shortage of affordable uh, housing. Um, so it's kind of interesting that uh, we're starting to, over the last 10 years, we've pulled back from that a bit. Yeah, you know, Gunnar, we're seeing in the progressive cities are cities that are really looking at the amount of parking. And some of them have gone to parking maximums. Um, and what we're seeing is much more flexibility f for the developers to be able to choose the level of parking requirement. And I give you an example. When we were building just right after the GFC um, in Seattle, the parking was basically 1.5 per unit. And we demonstrated in one of our projects that we were only parked at 0.8. And so the city actually allowed us to move parking down to 0.5 per unit. And we've been building only between 0.6 and 0.7 for, you know, basically since then. And it's really worked out about right. And um, so the cost of parking, if you get and you start going down more than two or three levels, that incremental parking can cost 50, 60, $70,000 a space. And that has a material impact on the rents that you have to charge. And so we see that as one of the positives in terms of bringing these parking ratios down. And really, we, we now have Uber waiting areas and or Lyft or you know any of these car, car share areas. So sustainable transportation and rationalization around what your requirements are as it relates to parking is huge. And it's, it's not a binary. It's not like we're getting rid of parking or we're getting rid of cars. Um, it's a more nuanced kind of equation. Multimodal, I think, Byron, was the term uh, that you used. But Brian, you've talked a bit about this in terms of the, the requirements both for walkability um, and things being close at hand to live your life, but also having a, a, an interesting parking requirement or access to driving requirement at the same time. How does that play out? Well, I think especially when you think about some of these non-coastal cities that are growing for all the reasons that Clyde and others have expanded on, um, those cities are still very car dependent. They do not have the public transportation infrastructure that New York, D.C., San Francisco has. And that may change over time, but you know, it, it took the Washington, D.C. metro system 30 years before it was you know, really good enough uh, for to be reliable. Uh, and, and that'll be the same in these other cities. It'll take a while. So you have to contend with the automobile to a, a greater extent. And um, I do think that parking uh, requirements can and should go down in a lot of these places. But I do think the, the, the most uh, high demand projects will be those that can accommodate the car but also provide great walkability, um, access to whatever public transport does exist or ride shares as, 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 they, as they are. Um, and, and that is from a design standpoint and a cost standpoint, the, probably the biggest challenge is how, how do you do it? How do you do it in a cost-effective way? How do you do it with an eye toward the future where over time, even in these non-coastal cities, 
the car may indeed be far less important, but today it's it's still pretty important. We had to build an office building in East Austin recently uh, that has turned out fabulously, but we had to do exactly what Clyde just described, which is we had to spend $50,000 in space to go down three and a half levels so that we would have three per uh, thousand parking even though we knew that it's never going to be used. It's not going to be used to that extent, but the, the market still required it. It wasn't a zoning issue. It was, a, it, was, it was the marketability of the tenant space. So it's just something we have to contend with for, for now. And, uh, and, and I think it'll be especially important in these uh, uh, non-coastal cities. Thank you so much for your thoughts, Brian, but uh, we're going to have to pause at this point in our future discussion. We'll finish out this discussion in part three, focused on the future of real estate that absolutely depends on density, including universities, retail, and hospitality. So make sure that you tune in. Before we close out, I want to make sure that we thank AFIRE's 2020 underwriters, Holland Partners, JLL, and Prologis. Thank you so much for making content like this possible. This podcast is produced by AFIRE, the Association for International Real Estate Investors focused on commercial property in the United States. AFIRE is not engaged in providing tax, accounting, or legal advice through this podcast. None of the content is to be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell any asset. Some information included in this podcast may have been obtained from third-party sources considered to be reliable, though AFIRE is not responsible for guaranteeing the accuracy of third-party information. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of its respective contributors and sources and do not necessarily reflect those of AFIRE.